Appreciate it. Thank you. So good to be with you. I want to introduce my wife, Carol. Um, she has been my partner in ministry for 45 years. We're really longer than that, but we've been married 45 years. And uh, we were working, we met working in Young Life together here in Dallas and um, heard about a little church starting up in Richardson, Texas. And we went to visit it the week after it started. So we were there the second week. They were meeting in an elementary school. And uh, we got in, immediately involved with the youth ministry there. And then when I graduated from Dallas Seminary in 79, I went on full time as the pastor. And uh, we've been there ever since. And uh, in 2019, I, I uh, passed the baton from the senior leadership off to another, another guy. And um, we still attend there. They're our family. And so we've been there for 48 years in the same church. And so it's been a, been a blessing. But I got a call from uh, Jeff back last fall, late in the fall, when he knew the Lord was leading him over to Telluride. And, and he invited me then, would you be willing to come and preach uh, while we're in that transition, the church is in the transition. And I just want to say to you that since that time, I've been praying for you. Uh, th this can be an anxious time for you because you're not know, you don't know uh, who uh, the next guy God has in, in store. The Lord is not wringing his hands. He's not, he knew this was going to happen. He, it's in his plan. And so it's for your good. Uh, you, you know, I know you love Jeff. Uh, sometimes God moves, moves us around on the chessboard uh, in his kingdom building work. But, but he is for you. He is with you. And he is our sovereign leader, right? So you're not without a pastor. And this staff, I've just met some of them today. Boy, they're just solid, rock solid. And so you're being led well by your staff, your elders, and God has his own timing. And, um, and so I'm excited for you, but just know there are others outside your body that uh, care about you, even though we don't know you, but we're in the body of Christ together and we're praying for you. So it's a privilege for me to uh, open the word of God with you today. Um, uh, and I want to begin by asking you a question. Who has been the most influential person in your life? You think about that, as soon as you hear that question, maybe there's someone that immediately pops in your mind. Maybe you have to think about it because there are a lot of people who've influenced you. But, you know, was it a parent, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a teacher, a coach, a pastor, whoever it was, the reason that person popped into your mind was because of their influence, not so much what they look like or what they own, but who they were and how they lived. And um, I don't know about you, but over the course of my life, I've been more impressed by the lives of people than the words of people. We hear a lot of stuff from people, especially with social media the way it is today. We hear more than we want to hear. But we're, we're, we're influenced and impressed by the lives of people more than the words of people. I had, a, had the privilege of having a great relationship with my father. And, um, and, but honestly, I remember very little of the verbal instruction he gave me. Uh, he would remind me, you know, that I wasn't listening a lot. But I remember very little of the verbal instruction. Some, th some things I remember, but what's burned in my brain and in my heart was how he loved and took care of my mom for 65 years. How he took care of and, and loved on his six kids and provided for them. How hard a worker he was. Uh, how he, his perspective on money and, and, and how generous he was to people in need. He, he, uh, how he served in the community. He was a quiet, 
man. Um, he was humble. Uh, and he led me by his life. And even today, he passed away in 2007. But even today, you know, he's on my favorites list on my phone, you know. And I, I want to sometimes pick up the phone and say, hey, Dad, you're not going to believe what just happened to your great-great-grandchildren. <laughs> I mean, I just want to, you know, I still want to seek his counsel on some things uh, because he has such a positive influence on me. And, and, and I know that you have people like that in your life. I hope you do. Um, and that kind of leads us into the passage we want to look at this morning in Philippians chapter 2. So if you're not there already in your Bibles, please take your Bibles or your phones and look up this passage because we're going to reread some of it. We read through it earlier, but we're going to reread some of it. Um, uh, it. When we first read through this passage in the context of the book, it, at first it seems like it's a little out of place. Uh, because usually in Paul's letters, when he writes, he saves his travel plans to the end of the letter. But in this passage, he, uh, he, gives, he gives us some travel plans for him and his, and his uh, associates in ministry right in the middle of the letter. And what I want you to see this morning is that he does that intentionally because they illustrate, they are examples of the message that he is giving in chapter 2 that began all the way back to the beginning of the chapter. So before we jump into verses 19 to 30, I want you to look back with me beginning with verses 1 and 2 where Paul challenges and calls the believers in that church uh, to, to live together in harmony and unity, to be of the same mind, of the same love, having, having one uh, spirit and, and being of one accord. And then in verses 3 to 5, he tells them how they can pull that off. Um, I, I don't know that you know this, I guess you do, but that is hard to pull off. I mean, when you stop and think about the church was formed in Acts chapter 2, and immediately there's conflict starting to develop in the church. And, and when Paul goes to all these churches, establishes all these churches and missionary journeys, and he writes these letters back, every one of them has, uh, a, has a challenge and a call to unity in the church. Because there's always disunity and division. And why? Because the church is made up of selfish, imperfect people. Now, I know yours is not, but I know ours at Wood Creek is. And uh, so call, uh, Paul makes this appeal. Because he also knew there were problems going on in the church of Philippi. As young as it was, he had heard there were some things going on inside the church. He was also aware of the opposition outside the church, outside pressures. And so he's addressing those in his letter. He, he alludes to the internal conflicts that are going on in chapter 1. He's going to hit it straight on in chapter 2. He comes back to it again in chapter 4. The outside pressure and the opposition and the Judaizers who were coming in to try to, try to try to rewrite the gospel for them and create a works-oriented type gospel. He addresses that in chapter 3. But right now in chapter uh, 2, verses 1 and 2, he tells that he, he makes this appeal for them to live together in unity and harmony, and he tells them how to do it in, in, uh, in these next verses. He says, um, do nothing from selfish ambition or rivalry uh, or conceit or prideful uh, conceit, but in humility... Regard others more significant, more important than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the mind of Christ. And then he, and then he illustrates the mind of Christ for us. And it's all about a humble attitude. He, he, he 
gives us in verses 3 to 5, um, or verses 6 to 11, he says, Who though he existed, uh, Jesus existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality of, with God something to be held on to, to grasp, or held on to at all costs. But, um, uh, but he emptied himself. There have been volumes written on that phrase and what, what it looks like, what it means to... For Jesus to have emptied himself as the, as, as the second person of the Trinity. Um, he emptied himself. And how did he do that? Well, he says, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in, in human form, he humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What a, what a powerful, beautiful description and summary of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Paul uses that example, the example of Christ and his humility and his sacrificial service for, our, for us. He uses that as a, to motivate these believers to f- have that same attitude and to follow that example. And so what follows in verses 12 to 18 is, pra- is, is, is a practical outflow of Paul's call to, to unity and humility and the example of Jesus. And that's when he says in verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He didn't say work for your own salvation or try to earn your salvation. He says work out, live it out, live out the salvation you have received. And what should that look like? He goes on to describe that further. It looks like not being jealous about one, with one another, not being, um, you know, and he describes uh, the importance of living differently than the crooked and perverse generation that they, they were growing up in. It's no different than ours today. And then he gives his own, and he says, if you will live differently, if you will live with attitudes of humility and, and humble servanthood, then you will, be, you will be like lights in the midst of a dark world. And then he talks about his own example of being willing to be poured out as a drink offering for their sake, for their faith, and for the gospel. Um, uh, in the in the last verses of that that paragraph, and that and that brings us, even though it's not a it's a very insufficient, incomplete summary of verses twelve to eighteen. The passage I was given was nineteen to thirty, so it sets that up because Paul is continuing that, and um, he 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 he's concerned about what's the pressures they're experiencing outside. He's concerned about the struggles that are going on within the church, and uh, he wants to be with them. But he's in Italy and they're in Greece and he's in prison and they're under attack. And so he can't be with them and so he does the next best thing. He sends two of his, his um, uh, ministry partners to them. Two men whose godly character, here's what I want you to see, whose godly character aligns with the mind of Christ. Two servants who are willing, who are living out the call of Philippians 2 verse 4 of let each of you not look out for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. They're going to illustrate this for Paul. And that's why he includes them right now. And the first, the first guy is, is Timothy. We've heard of Timothy. Paul met Timothy in Acts chapter 16, verse 2. His mother was a, a, a Jewish believer. His, her, his, grand, his grandmother was as well. They probably led him to Christ. His father was a Greek, probably not a believer. And uh, Paul meets him in, in Acts 16 too, and, and was impressed with this young man. 
and his, his faith and his, his uh, excitement for the Lord. And so he just basically took him under his wing and began to mentor him, disciple him, bring him with him everywhere he went. He traveled with him from then on. And he's with him as he writes this. In fact, he may be writing it for him. Um, but, but Timothy, uh, he says this in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by the news. He's worried about them. He's anxious about them and about how they're doing. And he sends Timothy uh, to them. Paul would often send Timothy back to the churches that he started. He did that. uh, If you read through the book of Acts, he did it in Berea. He did it to the church at Thessalonica. He did it to the church in Corinth. He also sent him to Ephesus. So this was something Paul did regularly. Now he's sending him, he's going to send him back to, to, um, to Philippi. But I want, what I want you to see, what I want us to focus on for a minute is, is um, what Paul has to say about this guy. Um, look at verse 20. He says this, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, not his own welfare, for your welfare. I have nobody like him. I love that phrase, and it's a pretty powerful statement because when he says no one, it's, a, it's, an, it's in an emphatic position in that sentence in the, in the Greek text. He, he's saying there is nobody like him. He's emphasizing that. In fact, that word like, the, word, the two words like him is not two words. It's one word. And it's, it's basically equal souled. I have no one who is equal souled like him. And that's, it's kind of a rare term that is not used often. It means, I have no one who is in complete alignment, who is in, 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 in complete agreement in relationship with me like this guy. And, and I, I listened to Clayton just a minute ago give, us an, give you an update on, 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 on the pastor search. And as you're praying, one of the things he said is pray that he will be equal sold with us. That you want someone who's going to be completely aligned with you in relationally, not just someone who can speak to you, someone who can come alongside you and live and serve with you and love with you and have the mind of Christ with you. And, and this is a, a power, Timothy is a powerful example. That's the kind of guy you're praying for a Timothy is what you're praying for. And, um, and, and Paul uh, I love the way he says that. There's every, and then he says this, look at verse 21. He says, for they all seek their own interest, not, uh, not those of Jesus Christ. And we're not sure who the they are that Paul's referring to. Most likely, he's simply saying, of all the people I could send to you, maybe people from the church in Rome, maybe some of the other companions that are traveling with him, of all the people available for me to send someone to you, I have no one like him. No one who is as equal souled with me as Timothy. Someone who will be as concerned, more concerned for your interests and your needs and, and, and than, than himself. Um, they all put their own safety, their own security, their own comfort, their own profit, their own pleasure, their own needs first instead of the interests of Christ. When I read that, I had to stop and say, Lord, I'm, I'm guilty of that. 
too often I put my own interest, my own needs, my own feelings, my own things ahead of the things of Christ or the needs of others. Even in retirement, I'll be honest, I retired from being the senior leader there uh, in 2019. And one of the biggest struggles for me is, is I'm, 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 I get out of sync in terms of serving, in terms of being engaged with people. And, and um, there have been times when I've been bored and saying, Lord, I, 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 don't want to, I don't want this to be the rest of my life. Um, but I know what it's like to get caught up with your own things more than the things of God. And, and I think that's what Paul is. He's, he's reminding the Philippians of who our leader is and who our example is and who we need to follow and be like. And he says, Timothy is one of those guys. Um, there's no one like him. There's not a selfish bone in this man's body, he says. He's a humble, Christ-like servant. Do you know anybody like that? Does anybody come to your mind when you think about someone who is just a humble, Christ-like servant? He's not trying to, uh, he's try- not trying to be up front. He's not trying to win anybody's approval. He's not trying to be popular. He's not trying to be in control. He's just willing to be a servant, to be second. To serve unnoticed. Would that ever be said of you? Would you like it to be? Leadership is not all that. And leading to the front is not all that. In fact, as you know, most effective leadership is from the middle to the back. And, and I love Timothy. I love his example. I love his humility. He's willing to do whatever Paul needs him to do, he's to go wherever he's needed, to help in whatever way he can. He was a humble Christ-like servant. And Paul says to them then in verse 22, you know what I'm talking about. He says, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with his father he has served with me in the gospel. He, they knew because Timothy was with Paul in Acts 16 when he went to uh, Philippi and took the gospel uh, for the first time into uh, in, Europe. And um, he was there when the church was started. He was part of helping that church um, get stable. And uh, now Paul's sending him back. They knew he had credibility with them. They knew his heart. They knew his example. And Paul says, uh, I can't wait to send him to you. And as soon as I find out whether I'm going to live or die, I'm going to send him either way. And I hope also I'll be following him to you. You notice you, one of the things I want you to see in this passage, you go back and read it, the incredible love. In fact, it's through the whole book of Philippians, the incredible love that Paul has for these people. He genuinely loved them and cared for them. And they did for him. And, um, and, he, and he feels the same way about Timothy. And he knows Timothy feels the same way about them too. That, that, that context of relationship is so strong. And then Paul continues in verse 25 by introducing another servant to the Philippians. Someone they also knew well. Uh, his name is Epaphroditus. Look at verse 25, 26. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, a fellow worker, fellow soldier, your messenger, minister to my need. 
For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but to me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. You see, Paul's strong feelings about this guy. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be less anxious. We would never know this man that Paul's talking about ever existed without this passage. He's not mentioned anywhere else before or since. And here Paul brings him to the forefront as an example to us. And notice what he says about him. Uh, He says, he's my brother. He's bound by a common love for God and for others. He's my brother. He's my fellow worker. We're working together for the advance of the gospel. He's He's a fellow soldier. We're fighting together against the common enemy. And then notice these things he points to, Paul points to, to show the deep relationship Epaphroditus has with the church that he came from. Uh, he said, he is your messenger to me. He is your minister to me. Uh, and then he says, he longs for you. He loves you. He misses you. He's homesick. And he's distressed over the fact that you heard that he was sick. Don't you love that? I mean, Paul's saying this about Epaphroditus. He's saying he's more concerned about the fact that you're worried about him than his own sickness. And um, he said, and that's one of the reasons I want to send him back to you. Probably he was one of the early believers that came to Christ in the church at Philippi. And there had to be, there wasn't a whole lot of time between when the church was established and this letter was written. But enough time that Epaphroditus had gained the trust and the respect and the love of the other members of the congregation because when they heard that Paul was in prison and they wanted to do something to help him, even though he was so far away and they couldn't all go, they, they sent Epaphroditus. They trusted him with financial, with a, a monetary gift that he's, Paul's going to thank him for in chapter 4. And then and, and they entrusted him to go and do what they couldn't do that Paul mentions at the very end of this passage. They couldn't be with him, but they sent someone as their representative to minister to Paul's needs and to help him while he was in prison. They had a, they had a, they had a strong relationship with him. Uh, what example, though, Paul tells us, gives us of, of Epaphroditus and his humility, considering others as more important than himself. Um, and so he decides to send him back home to them. And then he concludes with this. Look at verse 29 and 30. He says, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, men like Epaphroditus, men like Timothy. Honor such men. For Epaphroditus, he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. He's not saying something negative to them. He's saying, you weren't able to come, but you sent Epaphroditus and he has... He has, he has been effective. He has been important. He has served me significantly. He has helped me. I'm sending him back to you because I know you're worried about him and he's worried about you worrying about him. They're all thinking about it, not themselves, but each other. What a, what a beautiful testimony. And he says, welcome him home, honor him, and men like him. He literally risked his life for the work of Christ. That word, risk his life, could, uh, could literally be translated gambled. He gambled his life for the work of Christ. 
The, the, the word is, a, is, a, is an ancient Greek word that really, really means to throw the stake. Now, I, I don't know, guys, whether y'all did this when you were young, but I did a lot of stupid stuff when I was young. And one of the games that we played was throwing knives. We didn't throw them at each other, but we did throw them at each other's feet. And we would flip those knives, and the idea was you could get as close to the, someone's foot as possible without stabbing them. And, 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 uh, and, and whoever got closest, they, you would throw one, they would throw one, you would, and you couldn't move. You had to be courageously stupid. <laughs> but you'd throw those knives, and, and whoever got closest without stabbing the guy that was sticking up, they would get the money. And we played for big bucks, let me tell you. It was a big game. Well... That's what was going on. That's what that term looked, that's where it comes from. That was a game they played of throwing the stake the same way. Maybe that's where we got it. Um, and I didn't know that. Um, but it says he gambled his life. He threw the stake. He took a risk for the sake of the gospel. For my sake, Paul says, to serve me. What an example worth following. Um, in fact, there are many in the early church who followed Epaphroditus' example. I, I didn't know this, but I, I read it from um, William Barclay, who's, kind of, who's a pastor and a New Testament historian, really. And he, he tells about a group of Christians in the early church, who, who uh, men and women, who called themselves the gamblers. And it's the same ancient Greek term that Paul uses to describe Epaphroditus. And I know that he must have heard that, they must have heard that story that Paul gives, that testimony, because their mission was to go to the prisons and to the poorest of the poor and to help those, especially those who had infectious diseases or serious illness. That was their goal. The gamblers would show up in, in towns where, the pla where a plague would hit the town and, and the pagans would either leave people in their houses dead or drag them out to the street and evacuate the town. The gamblers would show up and go into the town and bury the dead and care for those who were sick and dying. And I think... The early church had this group that arose, that came out of following this man's example, who was following the example of Jesus, who came to us when we were wounded and bleeding and dying and in need. This whole passage in Philippians 2 is about how God wants the believers in the church of Jesus Christ to function. That's why he's writing to this church. He wants us to maintain a humble attitude and a deep love for one another that involves a willingness to sacrifice, sacrificially serve one another even to the point of risking our lives for one another. And let me tell you something. In the first century, that, that's the way many of those churches, even though they had divisions and they had problems and they had threats to the unity, but some of the things you see, I mean, even, the, even the great Josephus, the, the, the historian, Greek historian, I mean, the Roman historian says how they love one another. That was the description of the Christians. That's what set them apart from everybody else, how they love one another, how they care for one another. Listen to the once proud, self-promoting disciple, Peter, talk about the importance of what Paul's talking about in chapter 2. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. 
towards one another. And listen to this. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. James tells us the same thing in James chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you, but what I've experienced in life and ministry is it's hard enough without God opposing you. Right? We're dealing with a a lot. What we don't need is God opposing us because we're proud. What what, What we need is God's grace. What we desire is God's grace. And God offers His grace freely when we're humble. We receive His grace in abundance when we humble ourselves. And that's what Paul is is admonishing and challenging and calling the believers in the church at Philippi to. And that's what God is is calling us to uh, as followers of Christ today. We are never more like the Lord Jesus Christ than when we humbly consider others more important than ourselves. When we are more intentional about meeting the needs of other people than trying to get our own needs met. When we sacrificially serve others the way Jesus has sacrificially served us. Good examples are meant to be followed. That's what Paul recommends. So would you bow with me? In a a moment, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's table together. Remembering the body and the blood of Jesus Remembering what Paul does, how Paul describes Jesus, his attitude of humility and love and sacrifice by being willing to come to earth, become a man, die on a cross, take our sins upon himself so that we might be saved. I pray, Lord Jesus, that your humble attitude and willingness to sacrificially serve us would permeate our lives as your people. And Lord, if we, God, if you can help pull that off in our lives and in, in, this, in this church and the church that I, Carol and I go to, Lord, I know that we as a church can have irresistible influence for the gospel. Because Lord, I don't think that's, we don't see that anywhere else in our society, in our world. So Lord, help us to abandon our pride and our self-interest and give ourselves wholly to you and following your example and the example of these other people who are just like us that Paul shares with us in your word. And we pray this, Lord, knowing that it is God who works in us both the will and to do of his good pleasure for his honor and glory. We pray in Jesus' name.